You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. This week on HeadX, I'm joined again by a co-host in Nora Kozlowski of the Melbourne Business School, Dr. Nora Kozlowski. Thanks very much for joining us again, Nora, as a co-host. Hi, Martin. I'm so happy to be back. So excited about the guests that you've brought to us this week. And um, before we get into that, um, I'm sure you've been busy since we were last together. I know it's been a hugely busy time in the sector. It's been very exciting for us in HeadX. We've had some fabulous interviews with some People here in Australia, Claire Pollock of Western Sydney University and and Paul Harper, the leader of the University's Enable Group out of University of Queensland, have been fascinating local guests. Um, I've also been really pleased to make some connections with other international um, inputs to the the podcast. I don't know if you've come across Anne Kirshner. She's the president of Huntley College in New York City. Um, part of the CUNY um, network of of colleges. Um, and I've also got a, an interview coming up next week with some people out of the More Than Our Rank initiative. I know we had the university rankings, the global university rankings kick off here in Australia at Sydney recently from the Times Higher Education Ranks. This is a group of universities that are trying to find alternative means other than university rankings for demonstrating what they stand for, what they aspire to, what they're good at and what might make them appealing to people. So excited about those. But um, I'm sure you've been busy on lots of um, things sector wide, but also in the Melbourne Business School portfolio and activities recently too, Nora. What's been going on at MBS? Yeah, Martin, lots. And um, just on that note of um, uh, how are people thinking about sort of impact and how are they thinking about um, how education providers really um, create value and and how they um, support their communities, I think what's been on my mind a lot lately has been the issue of accessibility um, of higher education and just the the sort of um, thoughts around how can we ensure that we actually really think about what's the role of universities in providing um, um, access to advantage, what's the role of universities in in bridging sort of disadvantage gaps, and in actually solving for some of the the really big challenges where we see a large sort of um, gap between those who have opportunity and those who do not. I really think that's that's a core role that education has to, to grapple with going forward. And for us, so this year we released, as you know, our online MBA for the first time. And what's been really um, amazing to see now, we're two cohorts in, a third one about to kick off in about a week. But it is actually the difference that um, when you create education that's so flexible and kind of tailored around the student, just how much you can actually um, add to, to their lives and how you can accelerate their ambitions by structuring education completely around their needs, whether it's locational needs, whether it's family and caregiving needs. Um, but it, yeah, it's been a real um, sort of delight to, to see the impact and the testimonials and um, just, uh, yeah, how students are, are, are being supported through that new degree. So that's been a big focus for us. And then just one other thing I'll mention what's going on at, at MBS. 
um, one of the last times we spoke, Martin, we talked about AI, which, of course, everybody in education is talking about. But um, I'm super excited that um, the team that I work with, they are just phenomenal. They are curious. They are ambitious, but um, they're also super smart. And so they're currently they've got about five or six different AI pilots underway um, in how we both um, use AI in the sort of back end processes um, in, in how we um, support our learners. So. Um, everything from market research around new products um, to then also the kind of front end side, which is how learning is designed and how do we how do we do that in a in a more efficient way? How do we do that in a, in a faster way? Um, and also how do we do it in such a way that it kind of responds to learners um, much more swiftly? Um, so that's that's what we're working on at MBS. Um, that's that's you've really hit on the two the two big ticket items there, haven't you? That 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 you're all about, and that HeadX is all about, and I think I think the global higher education community is about, and that is, you know, this in, increasing striving for democratizing and increasing access to more people, including un, underrepresented groups, to gain and take the get the benefit of higher education is so important as an issue worldwide. And the emergence of advanced technologies that are making that possible in different ways and at different scales than we've ever seen before are, you know, if you have that drive of what, what it's all about, then you can't help but get excited by the technologies that are making it possible. And for me, on this podcast, having real innovators like you, Nora, and the Melbourne Business School that are pioneering such novel approaches to that is, is so exciting to shine a light on. But I, I think you and I are both of the shared minds. Um, I know it's come up in previous episodes and other conversations that we have to look globally for best practice in this sort of way. And we have to be prepared to look out of sector. You know, the, the idea that all of the answers might be in Australian universities for all of the challenges that we'll face in the future is a, fo a foolish belief to have and one that um, we're not prepared to settle for on this podcast. And I think that's a I hope that's a good seg segue. It feels very much like it's going to be to who our guest today is, Nora, and it's someone that you might want to tell us a little bit about. I think that's a perfect segue, Martin. So um, I do believe we need to partner quite um, profoundly with the world of technology and also with the worlds of, of venture capital, for example, to, to really think about how do we solve for the issues um, that matter to, to the people that we're here to serve, our learners. And so today's guest um, I'm delighted to introduce is somebody who's sort of on my 2024 big dreams and plans list. So there's a couple of, um, of ideas that we're working on together. And this guest in question is Alessandro Di Lulo. Um, so Ale is the co-founder of Supercharger Ventures and Supercharger Ventures um, uh, help support great entrepreneurs who are shaping the future of learning and the future of work. Um, Supercharger Ventures or SCV programs support founders as they grow their business, raise funding and expand internationally. Um, to date, SCV have supercharged uh, over 100 companies and partnered with over 20, I believe, universities um, to help boost digital transformation in the sector. Ale is also, um, aside from being a co-founder um, of Supercharger Ventures, is a PhD candidate at the University of Hong Kong, and he's a fellow at the Asian Institute of International Finance Law. Um, he's also a visiting professor at EDEC Business School and Chulalongkorn University. 
Previously, Ale was Director of Academia and Entrepreneurship at CFT, which is a world-renowned online education platform that works with governments and financial institutions to upskill professionals in fintech and AI. Um, so you can see quite an, an interesting combined background in education, in, in fintech, um, and uh, just super interesting guest for us to spend some time with. Ale, a very warm welcome to the HeadX podcast. Thank you very much, Nora and Martin, for having me. It's really a pleasure to be today with you on this podcast, uh, which I've been following. Uh, and so it's really fantastic to, to have the, the time and the pleasure of having this conversation with you. So thank you very much for having me. And I'll add my um, welcome and, and thanks for being here, Ali. And I look forward to us all hearing a lot more from you just after this message from our sponsors. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo, and more. Find the Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, Ale, you've got a really interesting background to coming to this podcast and coming to your work in in the sector, which, as I understand it, it merges some really deep expertise in the world of finance with a passion for digital transformation and the application of digital transformation to the higher education sector, which has culminated in that wonderful in introduction and description that um, Nora gave of you having co-founded Supercharger Ventures. What's been your your personal journey that's lied behind why you've made this, why you followed this path and why you've been on the career path that we've introduced you with? Well, that's really a great question to start. And sometimes, uh, uh... I even question it myself in a way. I look back and I sort of like to think, okay, but why did I take those those steps and uh, what led me here? Uh, it's interesting that somehow it also relates to what you were mentioning, Martin, at the beginning on uh, to really go forward, we also sometimes need to look outside and be very open for what's next. Uh, I started my career as a banker and I remember when I was at university, for example, I was the typical investment banker wannabe guy, really focusing on getting a job in finance, really wanted to do that, and I did. But then after a really short period of time, I realized that it was not for me, which was quite interesting because it was basically what I was thinking throughout my university. But thankfully, I had the, the courage uh, to take a step forward and a different step and leave banking and join the world of entrepreneurship. Uh, at the time, there was essentially fintech was just beginning. And so from finance, I was seeing these innovations that were happening in technology and, and in financial technology specifically. And I was very lucky to meet some great people uh, in Hong Kong specifically that at the time they were really sort of reshaping and reforming what finance was all about. From my today, actually also, supervisor Douglas Arner of HKU, to today my co-founder Janos Barberis, to other great people. These are all people that I met at the right time. And so I was exposed to this wave of innovation and new exciting stuff in finance. And I was so excited to be part of it. And strategically, it was also a smart thing to do because I was young uh, with a bit of expertise in finance at the time. And so I'm like, maybe I can really do something, you know, with the background that I have in finance. And now with this understanding, 
understanding of technology. So in a way, I was at the right time, at the right place. I had a, um, a great um, few years in, in fintech, uh, where I worked really on some very exciting um, projects, uh, especially on focusing on supporting people to embark in this journey, supporting governments and large financial institutions to understand what fintech was all about, what they could do with technology, and most importantly, how they could make sure that everyone at the institutional organization is on board. And interestingly enough, I've always been, almost without knowing, at the intersection of technology, education, and finance at the time, but pretty much always at the intersection of innovation, technology, and education. And so after a few years, COVID happened, right? And of course, COVID completely changed everything in the education world and in the world, arguably. And so at the time, uh, we saw together with my co-founders, Janusz Barberich and Tamar Shaiman, that were also colleagues at the time uh, in my former company, the opportunity to do something great in education uh, and specifically also leverage the background that we had and the expertise that we have to bring the same type of impact in the education world and that's how basically Supercharged Adventure started in, in 2020. Started in 2020. It's um it's not much not long ago. And now you've um developed a, a very large specific ed tech accelerator globally with an aggregate portfolio valuation, as I understand it, of of almost two hundred million dollars. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about you've told us part of that story, but any more that you can tell us about how you created SCV what its objectives were from the outset, and perhaps why you chose it to have the particular portfolio focus that it's developed in that time. Absolutely. When, of course, in 2020, it was a completely different world in a way all of a sudden, and in a way also what it is today. We noticed that education didn't have an accelerator that we had already in financial technology or in other industries. There were a number of accelerators that were primarily education, very education focused around learning outcomes, around pedagogy, but we didn't see really um, a global accelerator uh, um, focusing also on the business side. I strongly believe that in the world of education and technology, we can do good and we can do well, that we don't have to choose a successful business and between a successful business and the business that has learning impact or accessibility impact, as you were saying. So we really started in a way from the founders because also humbly, yes, we had a very good understanding of education. We were involved with universities. We had great people on board, but our unique skill set was around helping startups grow internationally because Supercharger was also, I didn't say it clearly before, but Supercharger actually started in fintech. We had an accelerator before in fintech and we had unicorns even coming out of the accelerator. So we could, we saw that we could bring the that type of expertise to the education world that was naturally seeing a rebirth of startups, of ideas, of technology, and also what was interesting and the type of objectives and the type of things that we want to do from the beginning, we saw the importance of having a global infrastructure from day one. And this is today actually what is also the essence of Supercharger Ventures. Why global infrastructure on one side? Honestly speaking, it was the only option that we had because we couldn't travel at the time. So we had to do something that was online. 
that was accessible by anyone and it was global by design from day one. But also because we strongly believe, uh, as we were saying at the beginning, that we really to innovate, we need to be open to what's outside, to what's some to what's happening somewhere else, to learn from best practices somewhere else and do it today. And then also in terms of objectives, very importantly, while it's true that we wanted to be a business accelerator as well, we surely didn't want to forget the education side of it. And so from the very beginning, we always had uh, a clear objective of bringing together startups, innovation founders, together with universities, schools, governments, education people. Because what we found is that very often, still today, they don't speak the same language. There is a lot of mediation and translation to do. And so that's also where we, uh, we, we operate. And in terms of the portfolio focus, at the time, and still today, in a way, we still focus on EdTech at large because we do believe we are still at the beginning of the market. And so we are generalists by design, but we do have a number of focuses and of key areas of interest that are coming more and more important into the picture and then I'm happy of course to share more about it later. It's fascinating and I can also see how you and who you are Ali as a sort of global citizen as a translator of different disciplines different countries how you've kind of almost you've brought that into Supercharger Ventures as well um, as a, a source of connection between different industries. One of the things that we're, we're keen to hear more about is your flagship accelerator program and you've alluded to it already but could you talk us through how the accelerator program works, um, what the founders that go through it, what they value from it, and, and perhaps even spotlight some of the companies that have gone through the, the accelerators and what their stories are um, and, and why some of them have been so successful? With pleasure. It's It's been an exciting journey and we've gone now through a number of iterations uh, of our program. We have, uh, as we were mentioning, our online flagship program, which is a, a global program uh, running remotely, uh, managed between our offices of uh, London and Singapore, and um, uh, really aimed at global founders in education technologies that are primarily at pre-seed stage. At the time, we were primarily seed. Now we're going, we're seeing that we need to go a bit earlier in a way. Uh, and it's not surprising in a way because a number of, of funds, accelerators as well, are trying to get as early as possible. Um, and uh, in terms of what's happen what happens during the program, it's uh, depending on the, on the type of program. Uh, it's normally a 12-week program that uh, focuses on a number of pillars. Uh, the first pillar is really around fundraising and funds. Um, naturally, as you, I'm sure you're not surprised, many founders come to us and they are keen to connect with investors. Uh, we have more than 50 investors, uh, EdTech VCs and general VCs and angels on our panel of investors. And uh, uh, we have more than 500 investors in our network at large that we have somehow some relationships and contacts with them. This is very helpful because it really helps us to increase the chances of founders getting the right meetings, getting in front of them. Just to give you a sense, also one of our latest uh, demo days was attended by more than 500 people, most of which were investors in a capacity or another. Uh, so it's really a way to connect with investors and also understand what they want to the point of translation. The same translation sometimes really needs to happen between founders, especially the ones that are on very on the education side with investors, because sometimes founders can be so excited about what they're building that they miss to tell the right story to get the investors excited money-wise in a way. Um, 
Then the other pillar very important, and this also relates to the business development side of it. We are really focusing on getting measurable impacts and supporting founders to innovate their business, scale their business, and also connect with more potential buyers and users of their solution. We work with more than 20 universities globally. We do have a number of schools as well in our network, and we do have a great ecosystem all around the world. And so the key question to us and the key mandate that we have is always how can we connect founders to mentors, buyers, uh, people that can really support their journey. And then last but not least uh, is really around our own support. We are known to be an accelerator that is very hands-on. We don't just do a relatively academic program uh, and we have sessions in class and that's it. We are there with the founders when they need it the most because we understand that the worst thing we could do is to take them away from their business. So we let we essentially ask them to come to class, let's say, when it's really needed and when it's really useful. We have a number of sessions that are bespoke. We spend also, as co-founders, a lot of time with founders and startups really to make sure they get the most out of the program and of our expertise. And then also something very importantly, and I'm so happy to see that it's getting more and more momentum and exposure, is the concept of mental health. From the very beginning, especially thanks to um, our founder, uh, our co-founder, Janos Barberis, uh, who is really an advocate and a champion of this, uh, we really, thanks to Founders Taboo, which is also one of our initiatives launched by Janos specifically, and the great team behind, supporting founders also along their personal journey to make sure they're also well when they're on the startup, because actually founders burnout is one of the most important or actually the most common reasons that startups fail. And so this is also one of the things we really, we really focus on. And you asked also about some examples. We really had the pleasure of having now more than 100 um, companies. And I'd also like to mention that actually uh, a couple of weeks ago, we launched our first physical program. So a program running in the island of Malta in Europe, uh, running by a stellar team there that we have. It's our first physical program and we really want to uh, also have this physical presence to better connect um, founders with uh, with great uh, launch pads and also to create hubs for founders to then when they don't want to expand to um, another continent, another city, they can also find us there. So now it's really also the first, the first physical program. Uh, I hope we will have one soon uh, somewhere very east or very or very south, depending how you look at the map. Uh, but um, it's really it's really exciting, and we had some great companies. Uh, I could really mention quite a few, but just because I was speaking to him the other day, I would like to mention New Campus, um, founded by Will and Fay. Uh, really great people, most importantly, but also a startup that is really growing fast in Southeast Asia, and it's a startup that essentially offers an alternative to uh, traditional education, a very accessible uh, type of education focusing on managerial skills uh, for mid-managers in companies that are growing fast, especially in Southeast Asia. Uh, great company. We have also, uh, I know you had them uh, You had them in the podcast as well. Uh, Vigo from, from Australia was one of our uh, accelerator companies. Uh, Grafo Game from Finland. They just won a super prestigious award uh, 
uh, as actually they really won many. So I'm even struggling to remember how many they win. Uh, but it's really a company that is being used by millions of children around the world uh, for them to become better uh, humans. Uh, and uh, they work around the concept of literacy um, and numeracy. So uh, really a number of exciting uh, startups around the world that uh, we had the pleasure of working with. Thank you. Um, it's so impressive and it must be amazing to to actually be able just for you personally to deliver such an impact by helping accelerate others journey that's um it's quite a um, quite a phenomenal thing to be a part of um you mentioned that um there are ambitions and ideas for further expansion and and one of the markets that you have been curiously exploring is the australian market and of course um as somebody who operates in this this market i'd be interested and, and keen to understand what observations do you have about the local edtech market in, in this country, um, in Australia, and whether you've got any sort of outside expertise about the, the growth of edtech in Australia and what the place of edtech actually could be to help support the transformation of the higher education sector. That's a, that's, that's a very exciting question. And it's, a, it's something I also love to talk about because actually and I swear I'm not just saying this because I'm on this podcast, but I do believe that uh, Australia is uh, a tremendous opportunity for EdTech and EdTech uh, is a tremendous opportunity for Australia. Specifically, we've been hearing a lot that EdTech is relatively a small market and EdTech in Australia then is even a smaller market. I generally disagree with that in the context of you were just mentioning also at the beginning how many people have certain problems around accessibility, around financing of education, around making sure that they're getting good education for what they want. So around employability, reskilling, for example. But also if we look specifically in the context of Australia, or maybe even if we just go even more narrow to the, I was there a couple of months ago in Victoria, we are talking about Education being the most, especially international education, being the number one export of, for example, uh, a state like Victoria. And uh, right now there are uh, a few hundred companies operating in, in the state. I do believe that that's going to be increasing dramatically, actually. We already seen uh, an important increase uh, in the number of startups in Australia. Uh, before COVID, uh, there were about 600 something. Now we are at about 1,300. So about double in the tech sector, which is a good increase, but not actually as, as big as we've seen somewhere else in the world. Uh, when even the number of startups in tech and future of work, because we tend to look at it as one industry for us, we, we have seen tenfolds or more actually. And so we think it's going to be really interesting. What I'm seeing also unique about Australia is actually the openness that, uh, um, universities and higher education institutions, and even in a way vocational institutions have in terms of trying new things. Don't get me wrong, especially to the founders that we listen to this, selling to universities or working with universities sometimes can be difficult. I'm not saying that it takes days or uh, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world. Absolutely not. But trust me when I say that I'm seeing uh, an openness about uh, innovation and about uh, the realization that there needs to be new standards and uh, new projects uh, that they can try that is actually spectacular. So I'm really positive that something also very important 
uh, to highlight is actually the regulators and the government efforts that I've seen. I'm witnessing a strong uh, mandate and uh, understanding of the opportunity from governments in Australia. And that's really something important because actually what COVID also changed was the perception and the um, understanding that something must be done and can, or actually something can be done and something must be done. Before online learning, technology and education was more, was more a question of should we do it or should not? Should we not? Right now, it's really a question on how we do it. And I'm seeing from a government standpoint and institutional perspective, a great openness. Now, once again, it will take time. It's not going to be easy. But this is actually one of the most important things in the context of, of Australia that I'm finding and I'm really excited about, especially if we look at the, the higher education sector, which again, it's also a sector that we are talking hundreds of, of millions of dollars, if not actually billions of dollars in terms of market. So maybe it's going to be relatively too small in 10 years. But with the startups that we have today and with the tech markets today, I just don't buy that it's too small now. I think it's really a matter of execution. And that's also why we're very interested in Australia. I wonder if I can just jump in there because I'm finding this a really fascinating conversation. We were saying in the introduction, Nora said in the introduction about the, the two critical issues of opening up access to education and how technology might make that possible. And we're seeing that as a dominant driver of innovation around the world in, in this sector and of um, the startup and the tech community looking at this sector. And you said some really interesting things there, Ale, around how some companies in Southeast Asia are looking at the sort of lifelong learning opportunities. And I didn't hear mention of a university being involved in that. I actually... I'm imagining you are describing a situation where the commercial world might emerge as a competitor to universities in some aspects of a future lifelong learning market and demand. But you've you've come back in, in, in locating the conversation in an Australian context to say um, that you sense our university environment and our government and policy environment is actually very amenable to um, engaging with these technological and commercial developments. And I think you're right. I think this is a hugely important time. We, I don't know how, how much you're across the fact we have something called a universities accord at the moment, which is our government um, looking at developing consensus across the, across the whole sector about aspirations for 30 years time and how we might get there. It's seeing a doubling of numbers of graduates over the next 25 years as its aspiration and more of them coming from previously underrepresented groups. You, you see prospects of our universities being ready to engage in this innovation, and you're right in the heart of working with startup communities and investors and your own company. What do you see as the ways that you would propose that universities can get closer to this whole ed tech community and movement in order to benefit more from the innovative ideas and ways of working that you're in the business of uncovering and apply them to this opening up of at-scale access to education. But what should vice-chancellors of Australian universities do? That's, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think we will need uh, a series of podcasts only on that uh, with a number of, uh, of leaders from uh, from universities, I mean, I'm also happy that today I'm joined by by some great people here that have a lot of experience as well. So I love to hear your your thoughts as well. But if I have to summarize, I think there are 
two important parts. One part is uh, a mindset shift, and the other part is then uh, practical elements and tactics, right? That might be some we see that are good for some and not for others, some we think that are true for everyone. The most important thing is a mindset shift. Um, I draw often comparison with fintech because that's that's where I come from in a way, right? And today, if you look around, you don't see the word fintech anymore that much. Why is that? Because it just became finance. MasterCard, Visa, Google, Apple, Goldman Sachs, name any sort of big financial institution or tech company, they are active in fintech, they are in fintech, they know it, but now it's almost not fintech anymore. It's just finance. The my pitch and what I like to say all the time, it was true for fintech and it is true for edtech. The sooner we stop referring to edtech as uh, the small, less, or I mean, sometimes more cool, sometimes less cool, but insignificant type of, you know, the sort of non-cool cousin that we have in the family or something like this, that's not the case. Like education, actually, or actually, EdTech will be, I know it's a bit cliche maybe to say it, but EdTech is the future of education. What, what I mean by it is now we call it EdTech, tomorrow it'll just be education. But think about it, right? In a way, even what Nora was mentioning about the MBS, um, the new MBS online MBA, arguably, you could see that that's an EdTech initiative by MBS. But now you're already seeing that those things are not really referred as EdTech. It just, we launch a new program and it's online, right? And this is a, an example. We will see more and more of this example coming up and more and more integration of technologies into academia and in general into the education world. And it will just be normal. So, and that's also how we see it, which is important from a, an economic perspective. For, for us, EdTech is simply put the digitalization, digitization and digitalization, more importantly, of education. Education is a you know, multi-trillion dollar industry. Today, EdTech digitization and digitalization education is at 5%-ish, a bit less. If you look at other industries, normally for more advanced industries, you have anywhere between 10 to 20%. So it's safe to assume as education is growing, that that tech will grow to a trillion dollar industry or four to five times what it is today. But again, more importantly, I wouldn't even call it that tech. I would just call it education in a way. Now, what to do? One thing, and again, we mentioned it a couple of times, which is the most important thing, is A, understanding that you are in the game and make sure that that tech in terms of strategy and innovation in terms of strategy becomes core. What we have seen is that a number of universities have set up uh, innovation labs, innovation teams, innovation initiatives. We have, you know, I must mention, not because uh, Nora is here, but we have the pleasure of engaging with uh, MBSN, the team at MBS. They're doing spectacular work. Um, well, I can also mention, you know, just for the anecdote, great innovation teams uh, at Imperial College London, ESMT Berlin, uh, that we work with as well. And these are important, but are always non-successful unless the buy-in is there, that universities understand that these people work on something which is core and not just on maybe a cool product that can be launched in 10 years or something fancy, but the business is somewhere else. 
no, no, that's part of the business, very importantly. Then the other thing is also make sure to be at the forefront of innovation and understanding what you can do and what you cannot do with innovation. Today, even for innovation for universities, staying at the forefront and staying up to date is not easy because even if you set up an innovation team, it's difficult to really understand what it's happening out there. So for example, what we work with many universities is to, since on a daily basis, we scout for startups, we scout for innovation, we look for trends, we provide this intelligence to innovation, to universities. And so some universities are really successfully partnering with alternative players. Arguably, you could see also Supercharger as an alternative player, really to support this innovation scouting market intelligence effort, also in a very cost-effective way. Now, I don't want to go against consulting firms, but historically they've been charging a lot of money for their market intelligence services. This can be done also in a, in a, in a different in a different way, any more cost-effective way. And then uh, the in a way, the, the other thing is really set up structured processes and frameworks that allow for fast testing and fast piloting of solutions. Naturally, some solutions will be right, some solutions will be wrong, some innovations will be right, but it's important that universities speed up their testing capabilities to understand uh, what's good and what's bad. That's why we, we launched, for example, the Sandbox, which is one of our initiatives, a digital platform supporting universities to find solutions, innovations, and to test them. And this is really, again, meant to support this, this role and this innovation mindset and the work of teams. But if we go back one step again, without the right mindset shift, all tactics, all of this will fail naturally. So, and then of course, you know, the more we have some great initiatives like this one, uh, the one you, you are doing with this podcast and with the work that you're doing, the, the better because it's just great education around this topic. So these, I would say, are the things that I've seen working very well in the world. Thank you, Alo. There was a lot as somebody leading innovation in a university setting, there was a lot that hit home in a major way. Um, and I couldn't agree more with the points that you raise. Um, let's flip to um, the other side of the conversation uh, and let's let's go back to the perspectives of um, some of the founders that you support, but also the investors and, and the, in the ways that you're creating these connections between those two parties. Um, I'd love to hear, while we're keeping a firm eye on the future, um, do you see any specific um, trends that are coming up that um, investors are, are specifically interested in when it comes to um, how they're evaluating edtech startups? Definitely, definitely a lot, a lot of changing. Um, in terms of trends, there are there are a couple of things. One is naturally the trends that we see on uh, um, on a technological level and on the areas that investors are really looking for. And the other thing is also what investors are starting to like in terms of how fund founders run their companies. To start from the second one, one thing, and I'm sure it, it won't come as a surprise, investors are putting more and more effort and preference in a way in companies that can sustain themselves uh, in a more sustainable way. Cash flow, cash flow management is becoming extremely important. And the concept of uh, I'll just raise as much as possible to just finance my runway and then I'll go raise again and then I'll go raise again. Now I'm simplifying it, but it's it just doesn't work anymore. We are really seeing uh, a comeback to more funda for to a more fundamental way of looking at businesses, even for startups. So 
to the founders out there, the more you can show that your business is sustainable and is profitable, or at least it has fundamental values in terms of how, how it makes money, that's a big plus today because that's really becoming very important from what we've seen over the last year and a half, really much where there was really um, freeze of capital and freeze of assets. And so founders had to rely on themselves. And it's important because historically, these periods are bound to come. Period. Uh, in terms of trends, naturally, big word is artificial intelligence. Um, we are starting to see a number of exciting trends. Um, the first one is finally, in terms of operations automations, we are really there. And uh, there are a number of exciting projects that we've been looking at and is really hot on how artificial intelligence can support automation and cost saving and better uh, operational structures of institutions, education institutions, especially that's something that we are seeing more and more. And also from a technological standpoint, we are seeing there. What is also fascinating is also how startups are reimagining how artificial intelligence is being included in the loop and how we can design new models of learning based on uh, the use of artificial intelligence and leveraging the capabilities of ChatGPT and those type of language models into education. That's something naturally that there is a lot of hype as well at the moment. But I think it's genuine innovation that because I do strongly believe that these type of innovations and technology shift are here to stay. Um, and then actually we mentioned also about upskilling, reskilling, uh, one topic that uh, it's just getting momentum and momentum and it's not stopping is the concept of, um, which I would call embedded learning or also skills-based learning together. So the concept of how can I use technology and data to learn what I need to learn and the best moment in my career without necessarily go and enroll for, for a master, for example. But how can I do it on even on my desk or how I can do it very quickly, very cheaply, ideally even. And so we're seeing a number of startups and uh, investors are really, it's an area that we're seeing more and more in conversations. Interestingly, this also raises a lot of questions to universities around how their business model run. And we are seeing more and more universities really taking a, uh, a shift, also trying to shift the way they look at student journey, not just from, uh, I promote the program, I enroll, I finish the program and then buy more or less and I get paid for it but how can I imagine different models where I engage students for maybe a longer period but only make them come when they need or how I can retain the data and information of my alumni and provide them with the skills knowledge and courses and content when they need it the most after there are a lot of solutions in the space and this is something that is getting very, very exciting also because naturally it goes even beyond education, but it goes also into corporates. And so that's also a bigger market in a way. So that's also an exciting one for investors. Uh, I could go on forever because there's really a lot that is happening, but this is perhaps what I was mentioning in terms of the, the key ones. Thank you. That deeply resonates once more, I think, um, for those of us who work actively with companies, but who are education providers, just the, the challenge of how do you reimagine how skills are developed? How do you do it rapidly? How do you do it in a way that's cost effective? How do you do it at scale when it's not just about upskilling sort of the select few anymore, but really entire workforces? So yeah, I can I can really see how that, that would also be a very interesting area for investors. But while I've got you, um, just to, I'm curious to hear 
Um, what are you really excited about um, about the future? What worries you? Um, how do you see the future of um, of the space that you're in? How do you see that evolving? That's um, really a great question. And um, once again, really, it will deserve a book almost, but let, let's try to give a, a quick answer. Um, I think in a way, I'm positive about the world that we are in, I, but I'm optimist by by design, so maybe that doesn't help. But I'm really positive, uh, both in terms of the world of education, higher education, as well as the, the world of EdTech, more generally speaking. Once again, because when we look at EdTech, I just see a world that is growing, that is becoming more mature, and that is becoming uh, recognized and uh, uh, exposed to the right people. And the right people within institutions, within governments, are understanding the importance of these topics and are working on them. So that's very exciting. I think we are not, there was a sentence that was more or less, you cannot really stop innovation or progress. That's what it is, right? It can take uh, uh, life in one form or another, but the innovation uh, in education and especially higher education is happening. It has happened and is happening and will only increase. So what I'm very excited, I'm very excited to be honest, to work also with, with leaders in the space that have the same views and uh, that are really working on defining these new standards for education. Um, we strongly believe that as an, an, as an accelerator, we don't just exist by ourselves. Our unique capability is really to become the super connector of great innovators, be great startups, be great institutions. But our role is really eventually to connect people and they make sure that they speak at the right time or that they can communicate with each other. And I'm not trying to downplay our role, but at the end of the day, we wouldn't just work if we were just doing almost like a zoo when we have companies coming and universities coming to see the companies, but not understanding each other. They would come and say, you know, there was actually a, it's a way of saying innovation zoo, right? They come and say, wow, that's super cool. That's super cool. But nothing happens. We want stuff to happen, right? And we are seeing more and more stuff happening, which is, which is very exciting. What worries me in a way is I'm excited, for example, about the future of artificial intelligence education. I strongly believe that's already the reality. We need to still already actually talk about it becoming AI first, not just digital first. How do we do it? is important. I'm, I have no doubt that this will happen, which is very exciting, both from a business perspective as well as from a professional perspective. Some people will thrive. Some people will find you know, opportunities. Some people will really change the world we live in. But unfortunately, some people will have a very negative impact because AI has the potential of changing how business run. And unfortunately, some, many businesses have responded to the future by just throwing people at processes and AI has the potential of, of changing this. And then there is the question of what do we do with these people? It's really a fundamental societal problem that some people might be without jobs, some skills, many skills will be redundant. And so it's really a matter of both leaders in organization to ensure that everyone can be engaged and progress in this future. And also since unfortunately, not always we can rely on those leaders. It's also a matter of us, the people, how can we make sure we upskill ourselves, we stay at the forefront, and we don't just say, no, this, for example, ZTech thing, no, I'm a professor, this doesn't apply to me or whatever. 
it does apply to you. It applies to all of us. And so the sooner we realize and we do something about it, the better we'll be because unfortunately some of us will not have a bright future and that's the reality of it and that's what worries me at the same time. The beautiful um, beautiful summary of the situation that you're finding yourself in, Ale, with the really interesting work that, that you've done. That was a glimpse into the book that you're going to write with Nora, I think you said, in response to her question. And um, my previous question, you very kindly offered to come on this podcast many times in the future is what I heard, which um, I may well take you up on. But um, just moving towards a close for today, that that lovely summary of your situation that you gave to Nora's last question, I wonder if I can return you to that perspective of the world of global vice chancellors and leaders universities. In response to my previous questions, you the summary of your advice was to change their mindset and get in the sandbox, I think. Um, Pretty much. <laughs> which sounded like very good advice to me. Um, but but in terms of in closing, the, the vision that you have for how higher education is going to change in a new learning economy of lifelong learning with a new role that will become mainstreamed and we won't refer to it as, as ed tech backed by investors in the future. But what, what does it mean for global universities, do you think, over the next 20, 30 years? And what do you think beyond individual leaders changing their mindset and getting in the sandbox? What do they need to do to respond to and reposition to your vision in what they're doing in the months and years ahead? That's really a great question. And uh, uh, it's really, really something that uh, we, we are really working on to make sure we have a defined response to it. And we can also really work uh, with university leaders to make this happen. In terms of the world we live in, as I was hinting, we're really seeing education and higher education really moving from in a way, vertical innovation to what I would call horizontal empowerment, right? Today, we are really still in a way, we're kind of moving to a phase which I will define, you know, between three and 3.5 in terms of education. I will believe we are in a three, three, 3.5, so post-COVID world, where what we're witnessing is the mix of digitization and digitalization of education, of higher education specifically, meaning a number of processes, a number of products are moving online or in a digital form. That's digitization, right? And at the same time, we are seeing universities and leaders pushing new models and creating new products that are truly digital. And so this, this is what I would call digitalization. But we are fast moving into something which I will define as education 4.0, basically, which has a number of pillars. The first one is really AI-driven. There is no doubt, as I was saying, that we are living in an AI world and we need to embrace it and adapt it. There are a number of steps that we can do to do this, right? First is realize it, more, more importantly. But the second is really make sure that we have a, a good understanding, both at leadership level as well as execution level, on what AI is and AI can do or cannot do. That's very important. We need to speak the same language. We cannot just rely on some IT people or tech experts to do so if we don't really understand what it is about, at least from a high level standpoint. And then the other one is really, how can we design a, 
a strategy, a new learning strategy, new product strategy, new business strategy that embeds all these components and the leverage artificial intelligence specifically to really be more effective, more accessible, and better in the outcomes that we want to achieve, more from a learning standpoint than a business standpoint. The other important uh, um, characteristics or the other pillars that we see is uh, uh, an education is becoming more and more skills-based, more and more um, continuous and embedded. Specifically here, we are seeing that the world of the corporates, the people, require a different type of models. Today and until yesterday, basically, the higher education world was primarily from a global standpoint built around the fact that, okay, you do an MBA at a very good university, more or less, I can expect you know certain things. It's basically a trust-based model. We are shifting towards something that we can call skills-based model. But then the question is how, as universities, can we provide students the ability to say, I know this, I know this and let me show you. Here, there are two things. There is one side, which is defining how people learn and the skills that students are working on. And this is also almost taxonomy problem in a way, which is not to be undervalued because it's not just a matter of it's an academic exercise, but it's also about making sure that we work with the industry to make sure that then these skills correspond to jobs that are being hired, right? People are being hired for certain jobs. And so companies are looking for skills to fill these jobs. If this taxonomy, for example, is not used, it's not helpful. Something that I'm really excited about is also the concept of skills portability, skills portfolio and skills mapping. I actually am a big believer that blockchain technology can be really of great support here. But the blockchain technology will only be useful if we define the right frameworks and the right um, standards to use it. But then it's going to be interesting. So the, the leaders should really ask themselves, how can we really think about our offering, about our value proposition more in these terms, rather than let's just launch a new program because uh, we, we see there is a great demand, right? So really thinking about looking long term. And then the other thing that I will mention is also we are seeing an education and an ethic world that is becoming more and more immersive. Naturally, AR, VR, exciting technologies, but I'm not just talking about this. It's the concept of how can I make my learning experiences be more immersive, more exciting, uh, more premium in a way, or more accessible because top universities are having the challenge of maintaining their premium to maintain their revenues, essentially, and their value proposition and their position. And lower tier universities have the struggle of declining enrollment rates. So how can we improve the education experience to solve at least partially these problems? Once again, it's really about how can I equip my institution with the right scouting testing capability so that these type of innovations are happening quickly and can be introduced quickly because otherwise there is the risk of higher education, especially for those working on year programs that have two, three, four years, if I implement something now, I will see the results in four years. And this is not really possible in the world we live in. So how can I measure progress faster than this? And then read the book that Nora and I are will, will be, will be writing. <laughs> what a beautiful, what a beautiful note to finish on. I look forward to reading it myself. And um 
You've given us some great insights there today, Ale. I really appreciate you sparing your time and sharing your expertise of so many global insights of and a, such a leading edge and perceptive picture of some of the dynamics that are facing us all in the world and are right at the top of mind here in Australia at the moment. So from my point of view, thank you very much for joining us. I'll hand you back to, to Nora. Thank you. Um, Ali, what a delight this has been. I There's so much. I took an entire page of, of notes and it's scribbled everywhere. Um, but I think it was wonderful to hear your observations around um, the need for us to stop talking about ed tech as separate from education. I think that's one of the things I'll probably be talking about that for the next month and, and trying to get that into people's language. Um, but it's it's also beautiful observations to, to truly drive home that innovation is the core of who um, educators and, and education institutions are becoming. Um, so I think that there's a lot to be learned from that perspective. Um, I'm also very grateful to some of the observations around um, how we integrate the best of different sectors. So your, your quote on we can do good and we can do well, I think is actually very appropriate because it tells us that there's a lot to be gained from um, sort of the, the lessons of the startup world, the lessons of venture capital and the lessons of governments and universities. So it's it's really about a bringing together of different worlds. And that's probably what it's going to take for us to actually solve the big challenges that we're facing. So um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. What a great um, conversation we've all had there. And I, I I can't help but go back to the note that you started us with, Nora, of seeing the two dominant issues there of increasing access and and making effective use of technology to make that possible. What a what you you set it up beautifully and what a great conversation and and what a great um explanation of the complexity of those issues and some very practical pointers for how to move forwards that conversation and that interview with Ale has given us and just just um commenting on that on the wider agenda of what we're trying to do on the HeadX podcast but perhaps even more importantly what what the universities are called in Australia as a metaphor for initiatives like this all over the globe are trying to do we we have a real challenge of trying to refresh and keep up to date our approaches to higher education at a time when we've got tight tight resources and tight budgets and increasing demands for education from people living ever more complex lives and I, th I think us getting really smart about using technology to do that in a way that stops us calling it the technology of itself, but just sees it as a reimagined and, and reinvented form of future education. Education 4.0 is the one that I'm going to be talking about a fair bit too. Um, and I just think we've seen a really great summary there of of the issues at the heart of the university's accord, at the heart of the HeadX podcast, and at the heart of the global agenda for change in higher education. And I'm really pleased that you've, you've been able to bring us another really exciting guest to the HeadX podcast. Mm -hmm.